Tassa well, I have to say, it feels really, really wonderful to be here. And I'm actually quite tired from traveling today. So I notice my little bit swirling from just making journey. So take that into context if my speech is a little bit blurred or incoherent. It's just tiredness. I'd like to speak this evening about expectations on the path and what we can sometimes find in our practice. Sometimes ideas that we come to practice with. So I don't know many of you very well. I know a few of you. But I know myself, when I started meditating, I had this idea that once you start meditating, it gets better and better and better and better and better until it's best. And I had the idea that enlightenment was this experience of unremitting bliss, that with enlightenment there was never any sense of distress or pain or any kind of sadness, and that everybody loved you all the time. And so, you know, as a 17-year-old person, these were all very compelling things, is, you know, to have no problems, to be loved all the time, and not to have any sense of sadness ever, or confusion ever. And so it's worthwhile just touching in and just checking out what you think of as spiritual practice and what you think is the result of practice. So, you know, before I speak, just take a moment and check in with yourself. What do you think is your example or idea of what happens when you meditate? What's supposed to happen? And then what do you think enlightenment is about? What does that feel like? What do you think it, it, what your experience would be? what you imagine it would be like, okay? So what we're often dealing with is a superimposition of these expectations on top of what we're actually experiencing and then feeling frustrated because somehow our experience is not measuring up to our idea. Now, one of the things that happens when we start meditating, it's a little bit like going into a church I don't know if you've ever been into a church and you see it looks really, really beautiful. You know, there's beautiful stained glass windows. I was in a little chapel that had been built in Santa Rosa by an Italian family. It was a chapel for the members of the family. It looked like it came out of Italy. You know, it was tiny and it was sweet and had uh, beautiful images around it and a little bit of stained glass. But if you sit in one of the chairs or the pews and you watch the light come through the window... Then this beautiful little sweet little chapel, all of a sudden you can see a million billion particles in the air. And you didn't notice them before. Well, sometimes meditation is exactly like that, where we begin to develop more clarity. And then what happens with this more clarity is is that we start seeing stuff that we never noticed before. And it feels like everything is going to hell, like it's all getting worse. And certainly, getting worse is not our idea of what meditation is about. Our idea is about getting better. But what happens is is that as we learn to relax our bodies and learn to focus our attention, we begin and learn how to touch our resistances. We learn how to soften and kind of lift resistances to things as they are. And as we lift resistances to things as they are, it's like, 
You know, when you take a, a piece of plywood that's been on the grass and you lift it up, you'll have all these shoots that are trying to reach the light that have been white because they haven't had any sunlight, and all kinds of bugs and nests that have made homes. And you lift up this pink wood, and there's this whole ecology of life you had no idea was existing there. Well, sometimes the same happens in our own meditation practice. We're doing something just like sitting or watching our breath or feeling our sensations, and we're learning how to soften around resistance. We're learning how to meet things with kindness. We're learning how to not grab and how not to push. And it's like somebody lifts up a piece of plywood, and there's a whole ecology of, of creatures and life and stuff that might not smell very nice that we discover just because of the fact that our attention is allowing something to release that was keeping a lid on being able to see it before. And so we need to understand that this is absolutely part of what happens in meditation practice. This is not unusual, this is not weird, and this is not a proof that things are going wrong. This is actually what happens when the meditation begins to focus. We start seeing things and feeling things, and some of the things that we see and we feel we would rather not know about, okay? So it's important in meditation to know that, you know, we're not meditating in order to have special blissed-out experiences, and we're not meditating in order to, for things to be different. We're not meditating in order to get what we want and get rid of what we don't want. We're meditating in order to understand these mechanisms and these ways of responding to these basic ways that we experience in life so those mechanisms can soften. And so rather than being in war with ourselves and what we're thinking and what we're feeling and how life is unfolding, we can be more present and caring to whatever it is that's arising. Sometimes, you know, we don't feel very great. We feel sick. Or sometimes we feel really sad. Or sometimes we feel really confused. Or sometimes we actually don't have a clue what's the next step. But rather than grabbing onto the idea that I should know or that I should feel well or that I should feel better, we can just open up to the way it is, how it actually is in the present moment, and begin to start dismantling our insistence that it be different and our pushing, you know, our demanding that it be different. And so when we stop insisting that things be different, then there's a way of relaxing into our own skin that's categorically different than when we have an agenda about how we're supposed to experience ourselves. I'm supposed to be bright and energetic and clear. I'm supposed to have the answers to everything. I'm supposed to know the path. I'm supposed to be kind and compassionate and wise. I'm supposed to be available to everybody at all times under all circumstances. I'm never supposed to get upset. I'm not supposed to be sleep. You know, the list goes on and 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 on. And it's impossible because life is not like that. It's the idea of the way we would like it to be, but it's different from the way that it actually is. So we really need to look at our expectations. You know, how do we expect? What is the long list of things that we do to ourselves that we expect? What do we expect from ourselves? You know, how is it that we expect ourselves to think and feel? And is this something that supports our clarity? Or does it just cause more pressure when that's not what's happening? 
So certainly, you know, it's helpful for people to have ideas about what they value and to move towards what they value and to move away from things that they don't value. So it's not like we become like a mashed potato where we've got no clarity about how we want to make choices in our life. But there's a difference between having clarity about the choices that we want to make and then superimposing a value system on top of things that we have no power over and going to war with the way that we're feeling because it's not a feeling that we want to have. Now, I've been away for two months, and in these two months, an awful lot has happened in Colorado. There have been fires in Fort Collins. There's been a huge fire in Colorado Springs. There's been 340 or 360 houses that have burned. It was just a terrible tragedy that happened here, not far away in Aurora. Twelve people are dead, 58 people are in the hospital, we don't know what's going to happen to them, you know? And this is what's happening in our world. That's like immediate, current times, this is like front page news, you know? And it's like, you know, how do you respond to all of this? You know, the meditation practice doesn't numb us from the world that we're living in. In fact, what it does, it takes the resistance off from being impacted by it. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to go into a tailspin, but it also doesn't mean that we stop feeling. And so when we hear news that is really disturbing, how does it feel to be disturbed? And how do we experience that? Is there a sense of vulnerability? Is there a sense of grief? Is there a sense of feeling out of control? Is there a sense of sadness? Is there a sense of wanting to blame? Is there a sense of anger? And it's not like any of these responses are wrong responses. But what we need to learn how to do is how to bring our meditation practice into the immediacy of what it is that we're experiencing. And learn how to soften around our expectation that it be otherwise. Now, with some responses, there's going to be more skillfulness than other responses. With some responses, there's going to be more capacity for the response itself to create more suffering than other responses. And so what is also needed, in addition to the willingness to feel what we feel, is the capacity to bring discernment to the kinds of responses that we have and whether or not they are moving towards more suffering or towards the end of suffering. But we can't escape feeling And I think one of the things that's a very, very deep-seated longing for many people is to meditate in order so that we can escape feeling things that are uncomfortable. And that's not meditation. That's suppression. And suppression has all kinds of other things that happen as a result of it that are not good or healthy or lead to a sense of well-being and ease for yourself or for other people. Now, certain kinds of suppression is okay. So if you feel, when you hear some bad news, that you want to go and kick somebody, then it is absolutely, totally okay to take that feeling and suppress it until you get out of the space where you're actually at risk of kicking somebody. And then maybe you can kick a garbage can, you know? Something that is not going to be terribly... where you're not going to get hurt and somebody else isn't going to get hurt and you're not going to damage property, you know? You can go in the car and roll up the window and scream, you know? So there are places where catharsis is useful, you know, but it's useful only if it is unblocking a kind of clog in the system rather than activating energy which then just has more heat in it, which just requires more releasing. 
And each of us needs to know our own mechanisms with this. So if you have a, a twisted up relationship with anger, where the first thing that happens with anger is that you stuff it into your bone marrow, then if that's your pattern, then sometimes it's really helpful to go into a very private place where you can make a lot of noise and say loud things and curse or swear or throw rocks as a specific way of giving yourself permission to feel something that at some point in your life wasn't allowed. But if your tendency when you feel anger is to rip people to shreds or to punch or to shout or to kick or to hurt, then you got to learn how to hold that energy and not let it come out in ways which cause more harm. So the anger is in itself not the problem, it's our responses to it. The vulnerability, the confusion itself is not the problem, it's our responses to it. It's our expectation that I shouldn't feel that way. I'm how old? I've been meditating exactly how many months? You know, I should have it all figured out by now. And some things, it's like, how on earth do you wrap your mind around something that doesn't make any sense? You have to hold open a space that allows it not to make any sense, rather than grasping on the desire for it to make sense, or pushing away all of the feelings of confusion and uncertainty and vulnerability and fear or anger that arise when you're confronted with something that absolutely doesn't make any sense. What is going on with somebody that this is their response? How do you make sense out of that? So we don't have enough information yet to make sense out of it. So we have to hold open a space of not knowing. And most of us hate not knowing with an absolute vengeance. We prefer to know something terrible. We prefer to know something that's actually harmful to know than to not know. We prefer to make ourselves bad people, idiots, stupid rather than to just say, I don't know. I don't understand how something like this can happen. So when we sit with this deep sense of not knowing, what happens? What kind of loops start happening? What kind of stories do we tell ourselves about who we are? Can you notice it's a story? Can you notice that in this looping, there's a grasping onto wanting to make sense out of something, when the reality is just that we don't know? When we're doing that, that is direct practice. That's exactly the immediacy of what practice is in that moment. We are watching what is arising. We are catching the loops that are happening. We are seeing the stories that we're telling ourselves about who we are in response to this. And we are observing and noticing this whole unfolding without judging any of it. So we don't need to judge, but we can say, no, I'm not going to continue with patterns that I know are harmful. It absolutely does me no good to trash myself when I don't know. That's not useful. Nor does it do any good for me to come up with some kind of a revengeful vendetta of going out and getting somebody and and doing justice to them. That doesn't do any good. So the mindfulness of being clear about where we're actually at needs to be met with a discernment to decide what kind of emotional reactions we're having to what's arising and whether or not that's actually congruent with our values. The first principle is to do no harm. That means it's not okay to trash yourself. It's not okay to put yourself down. It's not okay to cut yourself into pieces. And it's not okay to dump or to trash or to cut somebody else up, either verbally or mentally or physically. These things are harmful. So if we can't harm ourselves and we can't harm somebody else and we're left with all of this feeling 
then how can we be present with all of this feeling and not be harming anyone? There has got to be a way where we have to tolerate the feeling, not feed it, but not disallow the feeling, not slam the feeling, and see where it all lands. You know, when a person is in shock, when a society is in shock, when a community is in shock, it takes a while for it all to land, to get some kind of an appropriate response to what has just happened and how can we as a community respond to this in a way that makes any sense. What doesn't make sense? Well, for me, it's obvious what doesn't make sense is to add more violence into the picture. There's enough. We don't need to add any more suffering into the picture. There's plenty. You know? And we come from a society that is highly conditioned around wanting to find the blame. Where can we point the blame? Who, who is responsible for this terrible thing happening? And how can we punish them? And so this is a deeply ingrained cultural tendency that we have. And watch how it arises in our own minds, in our hearts. Watch what happens in conversations with friends or things that are posted on Facebook or, you know, discussions in the newspaper. Watch. But what we are dealing with is a society that is under more and more pressure. This has been an incredibly affluent society, and all of a sudden, you know, there's tremendous pressure to make ends meet. People are losing their houses, they're losing their jobs. People can't pay for normal, decent, medium-sized health care. People are having to make incredibly challenging choices about basic stuff. Do you pay for your medicine or do you pay for your food? And what happens to your parents when they get sick? How do you take care of them when you don't have the funds to hire people to bring them home, you know? So, and we don't have social systems that are actually stepping up to make answers to these questions that make any sense. So individual people are under more and more and more pressure. So we've got systems that are breaking down and societies that are breaking down and governments that are not having the resources to stand up and meet what's arising. And all of that is expressing itself in individual people in our communities. I wasn't present in Colorado Springs during the fire. I missed the whole thing. There's a very different thing about a fire which was not started by an individual malintent and a community that can respond. When somebody has some kind of a very powerful process that's going on that causes them to do something that is so profoundly destructive. We have more a place to embrace natural disasters than we do a place to embrace somebody who's so off the rails. You just like have no idea what's going on in their minds. So where do we find safety when there's no safety? How can we bring a sense of support to each other when it feels like the community is falling apart? You know, what is needed in order to touch what's present? And I think what's needed is, is that each person needs to be committed to touching what's arising for them, responding to what is alive here, meeting that with kindness, being clear that it isn't helpful to add more harm into the soup. There's plenty of harm already into the soup. We need to find a response that acknowledges the harm. It doesn't add any more harm. What does that look like? I don't know. So it's a very uncomfortable feeling to sit with something where you want safety, want security, you want to feel like it's okay to go to a movie theater, and you don't know, and we don't know how to make it safe. 
So we have to sit with the don't know until it percolates enough for us to come with a response that's coming from compassion and kindness rather than reactivity and more harm. And part of how we do that in a situation like this is we learn to do that with ourselves. We learn to meet what's present in ourselves when we don't know what's next. We don't have all the answers. We're not sure. So I was living in a community in England, a community that had been established for 30 years, and it had a tremendous amount of infrastructure and support. And so all of our basic needs were taken care of. Food was offered. We had robes. There was a cupboard where there was extra cloth and extra things that people had offered. There was medicine in the cupboard. In England, we had national health so that anyone could go to the doctor at any point, and they were never charged any money for it ever, you know? And for a whole variety of reasons, some of which you know and maybe some of you don't know, the politics of the situation was requiring me to say that if I stay here, I am agreeing to something that I know is harmful. And my primary commitment as a nun is to not do what is harmful. And so I made the decision to leave. And I came back to the States. And as many of you know, when I made that decision, there was nothing. You know, there were no group, there was no organization, there was no invitation, there was no support, there was no funds. I just had the conviction that there would be a willingness, I would be willing to try. And then slowly things began to form and there was an invitation and then there were people who said, let's put together an organization and somebody offered a little bit of money and there was a little bit of this. I had a place where I could stay. But an enormous amount of what I've had to navigate over these last three years is sitting with, I don't know. I don't know the next step. I don't know the answer. I don't know. I don't know. And the way that I have been able to tolerate the enormous uncertainty is through the little unknowns that I have to navigate in my daily life, meeting them. And keep coming back to, well, do I have enough food for today? Is is the roof over my head tonight going to be good enough for tonight? You know, are my robes in ribbons? Do I have to make new robes? Do I have enough cloth? Do I have enough robes for the week? You know, so when I went to Colorado, I went with the intention of being away for three weeks. And while I was away, you know, my robes were like disintegrating in front of my eyes. You know, they're cotton cloth, and I put them out on the line to dry, and they're like evaporating in front of my eyes. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll patch them. So somebody gave me some cloth, and I patched up my robes. And then somebody gave me some more cloth, and a friend helped me make a pattern so I could make another robe out of the same robe. And so we took it apart. And as we take apart the seam, it's like paper thin. If you blow on it, it's going to rip. But there's cloth now, and there's a pattern now. And when I go back to the hermitage, there's a sewing machine now so I can make another robe, you know, so that I don't have to wear tissue paper. And so part of dismantling the anxiety that comes with all of this is to keep coming back to the present moment and saying, well, what's actually happening right now? I've got robes right now. I'm not naked. I'm cool. I can get back to the hermitage. I've got a sewing machine there, you know? I've had enough to eat today, you know? So where my mind would go into anxiety is when I would try and try and figure out this big, huge picture that I had no capacity to map out, you know, like the five-year plan. How does it look? I have no idea what the five-year plan looks like, but I have a three-day plan that I can manage. So a lot of these last two years has been going from the five-year plan to the three-year plan and staying focused on, well, for the next three days, I'm good. And in that, I can relax. You know, I don't feel like I'm jumping out of my skin. 
you know, my basic needs are going to be taken care of. And then when I feel that, that I'm able to meet other people where they're at and help them respond to the kind of fears and anxieties and concerns that they have so that they can also get some kind of accurate measure on how do you respond to all of this stuff. How do you respond to your whole house and everything in it has just burned to the ground? That's a lot of loss. I don't personally know anybody who's lost their home. But I know lots of people who had to evacuate. So there were lots of people that were in the neighborhoods that had to evacuate and were at risk of losing their homes. You know, And I was watching, you know, when I realized that the hermitage might go up in flames, you know, I had my own journey with that of, you know, there's been so much community effort that's gone into this, and I have been so without stability in a house and a place to live for so long. You know, I might be again in that position. You know, so there's this incredible, ah, oh, I don't, don't want to feel that again. You know, I don't want that kind of vulnerability. I don't want to not know that I've got a place to be. But I don't have control over the fire. I couldn't direct the wind so that it wouldn't blow there. But I could attend to my not wanting and my unwillingness, my resistance to feeling what I was feeling. And as I go right into the resistance and soften around that, as I so want to have security and stability and see that, accept that, and begin to embrace the wanting, then the resistance and the wanting begins to soften and I come back into the present moment and I have some sense of peace. Even if it all burns up, what's really important is not the stuff. You know, there are friendships, there are commitments to awakening, there is history together, there is a way of practicing. I still have the robes on my back and the sandals on my feet and my bowl bag and my alms bowl. I have basic stuff. I've got a toothbrush, you know? I'm good. If that's all I have, I will figure out a way to do with that. And so when I can come back to, well, if that's all I'm going to be left with, is that going to be okay? And I can come back to, well, yeah, that's going to be okay. Then I don't need for the hermitage not to burn down. My happiness is not determined by the outcome of the fire. Now, obviously, I was really delighted that the hermitage did not burn down. But my happiness was not dependent on that. Can you see the difference? Yeah. But the only way that I know how to work with all of this stuff is to meet it where it is arising. Not as some kind of an abstracted idea of how it's supposed to be. That I'm supposed to be peaceful and equanimous and kind and wise and energetic and I am not supposed to have attachments and I am supposed to be and this and this and this and this and this. It's like forget it. Just forget it. Completely forget it. Feel what you feel. Feel the feelings. Touch them. See the resistance to touching them. See the desire that things be a particular way. Touch that desire. And feel the suffering that comes with wanting. Feel the suffering that comes from pushing. Feel the suffering that comes from furious raging. And how do we embrace it? So that we come up with another response. Now one of the 
interesting things about practice is, is, is that my experience is, is, is that I get more sensitive. The more I practice, the more I feel. But the more I practice, the less I suffer. So there is a distinction here between pain and suffering. Pain is the raw experience of sadness or grief, of vulnerability, of confusion. The suffering is what we do with it. I don't have a magic wand to make feelings go away, to make them not arise. I cannot walk into a situation and say, I will determine that I will only feel equanimous here. It doesn't work like that. But when I feel confused or frustrated or furious, I do have a choice about how I respond to those feelings. I do have a choice about how I can bring my attention into my body and feel the feelings in my body, or how I can stay looping in stories that I'm telling me about who I am because of what I'm feeling. That choice of where we place our attention is a choice that we have. Now we can make choices that give up that choice. So if we have too much alcohol, or to smoke too much dope, or take too many hallucinogens, we may give up that choice. Most of the time, that's a choice that we have, but we don't remember, because we get overwhelmed by what we're feeling. And we don't remember that we can practice with what we're feeling. Even if what we're feeling is everything on the list of what we think we're not supposed to be feeling if we're practicing. So it's a kind of like reality TV, what's happening right now. Not what's supposed to be happening right now, but what's actually happening right now. And how am I responding to it? So as a koan, we can take that into every aspect of our life. What's happening right now? And how am I responding to it? It's totally portable. It doesn't require special circumstances. You don't need to be with other people who are meditating. It doesn't have to be polite or nice. But that is direct practice. And direct practice for me is the way out of these kind of situations. It's the way to honor, the way to touch, and the way to respond to. For myself, for the people around me that I love, that I care about, in the community. So I'd like to pause here and recommend that we take a few minutes break and stretch and have something to drink and then come back together in a circle and then have a conversation or discussion about anything either related to this conversation or what's happening for you now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.